on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. It's time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop marks, and exhaust. It's time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. Hey, welcome to the F-14 Tomcast. I'm Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch. I was an F-14 pilot and Top Gun instructor, and I'm one of your hosts today on the F-14 Tomcast. Now, for about the first two decades of service, the Tomcat was strictly an air-to-air platform, as we've discussed many times before. But as you probably know, in the 1990s, it was cleared to start carrying bombs, and soon it became the premier strike fighter thanks to the Lantern targeting system. And I'm Dave Baronic, call sign bio. I was an F-14 Rio and a Top Gun instructor, and I'm your other host for the F-14 Tomcast. The main reason that the Tomcat became the premier strike fighter platform was the Lantern Pod, the Lantern targeting system. Our guest today is former F-14 Rio, Dave Parsons, call sign Hey Joe. He was one of the key players in getting the Lantern system adapted from a two-pod setup used on Air Force jets to the single-pod system on the Tomcat. There's a lot more to the story, as you're about to find out. Hey, Joe, welcome to the F-14 Tomcast. It's really good to be here. Good to uh, see both of you and, and, and have a chance to tell some of the unknown aspects of the story. Okay, thanks for taking uh, the time with us. I'm sure a lot of people are going to like this one. Let's start off, though, like we do with uh, with all of our guests. Tell us where you're from, how you got commissioned, and how you got into naval aviation and F-14s. I actually uh, had a roundabout route. I actually signed up for Marine Corps aviation program when the Marine Corps was in the Tomcat program. And uh funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, the Marine Corps bailed out while I was in officer candidate school. And I was like, wow, well now what? And, uh, that was in 1974. So when I got commissioned in 76, um, I'm here, I am as a Marine and there's no Tomcats in the Marine Corps, but, um, but there was a big backlog to go down to, um, Pensacola because Vietnam had wound down. And so I ended up in a Navy, actually OPNAV office with a couple of Marines and all these Navy guys. And some of them were Tomcat guys. And they knew about my story. And uh, one day they said, uh, you know, you could uh, come over to the Navy and fly Tomcats. You know that. I go, no, I don't know that. (laughs) And so they um, helped me understand how I could do an inter-service transfer. And actually one of their good drinking buddies was the guy in charge of it. And he just came over after hours one day and said, here, uh, write this letter. It's already approved. So I just need the letter from you. So I went to work one day in the Pentagon as a Marine first lieutenant by then and went home as a Lieutenant JG. Amazing. And then I met you shortly after, um, like the the first or second day I was down in Pensacola through a mutual friend. Oh, yeah. Our our mutual friend, our friend Beats introduced us. Uh, I still remember meeting you. Um, But, you know, you know, mentioning that. Some people may find it hard to believe that the Navy just took you right in. But in those days, uh, they had a hard time meeting quotas, probably, you know, and even for Tomcats. So, um, you know, they were happy to have another. One night in the simulator, and it turned out everybody in there were were Navy guys, but every one of them had been Marines. (laughs) uh, One of the Gigliottis and uh, and everybody's like, 
I heard him talking about Quantico. I'm like, when were you guys at Quantico? And they go, oh, yeah, we switched over, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so once you join the F-14 community, uh, and, and I know some of these story, some of these stories, so uh, when I ask these, I know what's coming a little bit. But once you joined the F-14 community, what squadrons were you in? And eventually, yeah. I got um, to VF-101 as VF-102 and VF-33 were transitioning. So everybody in my class, except for one pilot and myself, were um, actually from one of those two squadrons. And and these guys are just so, uh, I mean, they accepted me as one of their own and and they they were both saying, well, which squadron do you want to go to? Because we're going to take you with us. And so it was kind of hard to choose, but um, 102 had a little more seniority and uh, higher picking preference, you know, draft picks. So they, they snagged me and they came in one day and put their patches on me and said, stop wearing the 101 patch and you're going to 102. And nice. I, it was funny because 32 was trying to recruit me at the same time. And, but um, 102 had a higher priority because they, they were going to deploy so quickly. So, and because I was, by then I was a lieutenant and so far behind my peers. Um, later on, once I was in 102, they uh, they said, well, how would you like to be a super JO and just stay here? Right. I said, yeah, I want to catch up. And so I stayed six years as a Diamondback straight. I saw a whole squadron come in after me and leave before me. That is wow. incredible. Six yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> But I got to take a lot of pictures and do a lot of good stuff. And yeah, you did a lot. Out with fifteen hundred hours in my uh, first. So, tour. so hey, Joe, that's that's amazing. And it's funny you make that offhanded comment about taking a lot of pictures. You know, I I'm Facebook friends with you, and uh, I know that sometimes you put it, you'll post on your your feed. You know, something from the shoebox. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you go through and you've got some old photos, and those are obviously wet film photos that you've digitized and things oh, like that. Yeah. How many photos do you have? Well, you when they, uh, you know, they give you a plaque when you get a thousand hours. And it was funny. They, uh, they, the plaque they gave me said a thousand hours, 10,000 pictures. And <laughs> I, I was like, well, I don't know. If you count all my tarps pictures, maybe I have 10,000. But um, when I hit 2,000 hours, they gave me one that said 20,000 pictures. And I, I think I have that many. Um, That's good. That's good. Are they all good. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody but, was thinking, but uh, you know, I kept them all. I kept them all in my in literally a shoebox. I have a picture of that somewhere. And um, they, uh, it, it was only recently when an author came to me looking for some obscure pictures from El Dorado Canyon that I had. He had heard I had them, and they needed some help because of processing errors, stuff like that. But he goes, "Hey, I can fix all this for you." And in exchange, if you'll just you know suppress the photos till. I, my book gets published. So that's what we did. Now, that's why a lot of these pictures are only coming out now on Facebook because this, his, he's, he scanned them for me too, which with, you know, Dave and I compare notes on this all the time. That's a royal pain in the ass and it's expensive, but this guy was doing them for me, you know, a few hundred at a time. And that's why it'll pop up. You know, I try to do one a day uh, for all the, the people that like them. Have you ever thought about doing like a coffee table book of all those photos? Um, <laughs> 
I, I already have several out there. I oh, do you? Oh, okay. Edit that out. Three. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah, I'm know. working on book number 10 right now. No, we're not cutting that out. That's, yeah. that's good advertising, you know? Yeah. Okay. So silly me, I didn't know that, you know, uh, but you know, I got Eric Hildebrand's book. I don't have yours. That's crazy. Amazing. Yeah. I wrote the uh, backstory on his, but he, he was living with me when he did that. And, oh, uh, no kidding. Yeah. He's the photographer here on the base. So he came here as a geo bachelor stayed with me and asked me to write the backstory. He didn't know nothing about Tomcats. He knew mm-hmm. about Hornets. Right. He's friends with lights. And so I got him interested, but he didn't want anybody else's pictures in there, but he, he wanted words. So I wrote his backstory for him. So I've got all these books over here about 10 feet away from me. That's good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Where can, now, uh, for the folks who are listening or watching, where can they order yours? Well, I was just helping somebody the other day, um, Bob Lawson, who Dave knows, his son inherited his collection and he says, oh, I need one of the books that I did with Bob and, and they're only secondary market. Cause these were all published. Uh, that book was published in 2006. The Tomcat book called fighter country, which was just about Oceana Tomcats was published in 1992. It, they run as high as a thousand dollars on the uh, secondary market. You have to watch Amazon for them to pop up. I, that's what I have to do when I want one. Wow. Mine have already come and gone. You know, many times over. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. So this has nothing, this has nothing to do with the lantern targeting system, but what a great conversation. Oh yeah. No kidding. I'm going to, and, and we're going to get comments that say, have Hey Joe back for a whole episode. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to ask one more scene setter question. I think it's a good question. When did you leave Tomcats and the Navy? when, yeah, there's a, there's a reason for this. What year did you leave uh, the Navy? I went um, I went out on a real high. Um, you know, I Crunch and I were talking in the in the, the green room uh, about um, I joined thirty two in eighty nine and um, just in time to be there and get my strike lead qualification before Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And so my whole career here, I am practicing to do all this stuff and then I get to do it and and there's tons of gas in the air I mean we we never wanted for gas and I'm like it's anything after this is gonna be a letdown you know and um and it was <laughs> and my admiral uh, took me afterwards um and it's funny the, the admiral my battle group commander Admiral Riley Mixon was the basically the deputy in the office I worked in as a marine and he's the one that that swore me in as a naval officer. And then here he is years later as a two-star, my battle commander. And he, he knew me, you know, very well. And he yanked me up on his staff to coordinate all the photo reconnaissance during, um, desert storm. And, um, which, and then when we were done, he goes, well, you're going with me to the Pentagon. You're going to be in charge of the recce stuff. And, um, but then funny, another funny thing happened to me, all these things in my life, I just fell backwards into. And, I get to the Pentagon and I go to the desk. I knew where it was because I'd visited them a couple times. They go, no, you're not going to be working here. They got another job for you. And they sent me down the hallway to be the missile guy, which was really set me up for uh, Lantern. And because um, it turned out the guy there, Stretch McKenzie, had been tapped to be a program manager over at Navarre and had to leave right away. So they just – and my admiral now was the head of naval aviation. So the same admiral that swore me in, same one that was my battle group commander. And he said, you know the building, you've been here before, so you can do this job. Even though I was probably two ranks junior 
to do it. And that set me up to see the deep inside of not just the Tomcat, but the Hornet and the F-15, the F-16, because I became the lead for M9X Sidewinder and for the AMRAM programs and a few other special programs and Phoenix. Amazing. And, uh, and then AAAM went away. It was Block One Strike, which was supposed to have some kind of flair on it, um, but they raided that. That was over a billion-dollar program. As I was walking in the door, they had savaged that to pay bills, peace dividend after Desert Storm, and then they went after AAAM. So it was just every day they're coming in, just just making vertical and horizontal cuts against programs. So that that's when Lantern was out of desperation, came inspiration to get the pod on there, get it on quick. Okay, Not well, I remember. Way. I remember coming to visit you because I was on the joint staff to, or or either or at Quantico yeah. Command and Staff College. I remember coming to visit you in the A uh, Missiles Office, and that was your last job in the Navy, right? Right. So my point there is that you did all air to air Tomcat stuff, right? And then uh, so it's kind of ironic. Doing? It's kind of ironic that you were uh, the lead guy when they put this uh, fantastic pod on, and. Uh, you know, that turned the Tomcat into a strike fighter that it always had the potential to be. Well, I'll tell you another um, thing for both of you being Top Gun instructors, that the guy that had the inspiration that deserves all the credit that, you know, there were several key people along the way. It was like aligning planets. But one of the key people along the way that recruited me out, like I was, I had verbals to go be CAG Ops and CAG 17. Oh, that was CEO from Desert Storm. It was That's a great job. And 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 to fly the B, and I'm like, finally, I get to fly the big motors. And my admiral said, "No, here's what I want you to do. You know, it, you you're hitting twenty, so I need you to go be my weapons integration guy, and I want you to teach people how the Pentagon works." And I was like, "No," and he's going, "Yes." You know, think about your own career. And he had to convince me. That was Phil Anselmo, but he eventually did. And I knew him. He, I knew the him. Guy, yeah. yeah. So the guy that. Uh, had the inspiration was the number two guy that created the gun school, Jim Rolison. And I always knew who he was. He used to come in and visit. I had heard about his legend and he came in, was talking to me about air and missiles because they wanted his company wanted to work on him, not X. And so they hired me because I wrote the requirement for him, not X. I knew what that missile was going to be from nose to tail. And they said, well, you're the guy we want because we're going to work for one of the competitors that wants to w build it and it, i i finally retire in summer of 1994 when i hit right as i hit 20 and i um the first thing he does is we're gonna put a lantern pod on tomcat and i said why so <laughs> i was like <laughs> yeah because see because so, you had grown up in the yeah. air, air tomcat community and so and like what do you know about it and um it turned out he had been the f14d um program manager and he knew how you could put digital systems on an A because to test all the D systems like IRSDS, they had to fly those on A models at Pax River before oh, they were in the D. Very cool. He knew, he knew about this little chip that was sitting up at Fairchild, that, and he knew about what was behind the AUG-15. He started diagramming this stuff out, and I was sitting there going, I don't know what you're talking about. He was talking about sync lines and all these things. He says, we can do this. And we won't have to do anything with Pax River. We can go right to the fleet and put it on the airplane. I'll go, yeah, right, that's going to happen. And But he was brilliant. 
And okay. uh, before we get too far away, we're talking about Jim Rolofson. And he's yes. one of the original, as you said. I mean, you said his name, but I want to just key yeah. on the guy because that's one of the questions we asked you, you know, where did this come from? He was. He was a uh, combat fighter pilot and one of their early Top Gun instructors. I've met him yeah. also. He is a great number guy. Number two picture on the wall. If you go, the number one picture is Dan Peterson. Number yep. two is Jim Wilson. He was, he The two folding chairs they had in the typewriter, he was sitting in one of those two folding <laughs> chairs and wrote the first lecture on Sidewinder at Top Gun and then later commanded Top Gun. Yes. Okay, so, so – Crunch, I'll give you an opening here in a minute. But so, hey, Joe, uh, tell us what the F-14's community's attitude was about air to ground. I mean, probably besides they didn't even care, they were probably hostile. It, it wasn't even it was more than air to ground. It was we're never going across the beach uh, because we don't have the proper DECM to protect ourselves because uh, they'd never gotten ASPJ. So they were like, we will always, because of the threat of the Soviet backfires, you know, that we, our job is fleet air defense. That's what we're going to do. Oh, man. I never, I'll tell you what, wait a minute, I never heard that. And and again, this is a campaign that I fight online. I never heard that. Oh, yeah. And uh, I tell you, and when I went to the, the senior officer repressure course uh little mac macklin arranged me for to go through that as i was going in as a department head at 32 yeah. as i was leaving i was editor of approach magazine and i'd helped do a whole issue on air combat and he goes why don't you come to zork and i go what's that and yeah. that's i met up with you while i was out there yeah so i'm like the small fish in the room with all there were admirals in there there were co's or cags and so they had um a couple senior attack guys in there and i remember Kelly Behringer giving the lecture about how Tom Ketcher and escort a strike group. And they got up and said, you guys are just beacons. You guys, you can go over here and attract all the attention. We're going to go in. We don't need you. And even, even when okay. I was in desert storm, our CEO of our ASX squadron first night said, don't want Tomcats. You guys stay away from us. And then he, he saw me later that night and he grabbed me. And he's a big guy. Bob Beasley grabs me by the, flight suit in the chow line he goes do you know how many burner rings a mig 25 has and i go no he goes well i do and he, he got overflown by the mig 25 that that um because of their dcm they were able to break the lock and then that mig 25 got vectored on spiker wow. he was actually there when that happened and after that he goes i want tom Cats to the left of me i want him to the right of me because everybody saw that that radar, they would run from the Tomcat radar, but they they wouldn't run from anybody else. All right. Okay. <laughs> so I never Very thought good. we'd ever do air to ground, and I, I thought that I always was in the fighter history. I, I only wanted to do air to air. Yeah, and the whole Tomcat community was like that. Yeah. It was my, was my recollection from Miramar. So Lantern, so uh, Ruff suggests, Ruff Rolofson suggests Lantern, and you're in the office. How, how did he get kicked off? Well, so what he said was, we are going to put Lantern on the Tomcat as an unsolicited proposal because he was bright enough to realize that, meanwhile, the Hornet, so-called Hornet Mafia, was trying to raid all the money. They were trying to retire the A6, which they were successful in doing. 
and they were after the Tomcat next. There was this big battle going on in the Pentagon, which became important for Lantern. Which one are you going to keep, the A6 or the uh, Tomcat? And um, Rear Admiral Allen was in that meeting. He was N81 at the time, and and he said, well, we need precision strike. And the Tomcat guy said, well, we can put precision strike on the Tomcat, but you can't. Because it was already planned out as block one strike, but they just raided that, taking a billion dollars out of it, and they only left a few hundred million. What's block one strike? That was the first upgrade to the Tomcat that was going to have everything okay. you needed to be a uh, an attack aircraft. Okay. So they had already they had already spent some money. They had flown a lantern pod down at Pax River on a Tomcat and gotten this was important. They'd gotten the interim flight clearance to carry it, and they found out that it fit on a Harm adapter. It doesn't fit on the Phoenix Rail. It fits on a Harm adapter. The shape outer shape was just. Um, I brought my visual aid. The outer shape of the uh, Laren pod matched the Harm adapter. That was a minor miracle. There were several minor, minor miracles that enabled that. The other one was the existence of that chip and the existence of a plug uh, behind the AUG-15 panel that Ruff knew about. And he, we were uh, working in Tyson's Corner. He says, come with me. And we go jump in his car. We raced up half hour up 270 to um, Germantown, Maryland, where Fairchild was. And Fairchild built the AUG-15, and they built – um, the uh, TIDs, and they were about to build the uh, uh, P-TIDs. And so he knew some old guy there that had worked on that. And we went and he found this kid. He knew exactly where in that company all those components were, and they were sealed in a cage um, for for Navair. And he jumped on his phone and called someone in Navair and says, here, tell them you can break the seal. You know, so they they break this lead seal, and he reaches in, pulls this thing out, and he had to blow dust off it. And he goes, this this little thing, you can now fly a Laren pod on a A model or a B model, and you won't have to do anything else, You know, which is huge for the uh, development test, operational test. Because our whole strategy that I helped on was how do you avoid doing developmental and operational tests? Because we knew the Hornet guys were going to go out all that money. And unless we put a solution on the table inside one palm cycle, and that was my forte is understanding that. And I said, you've got to get this done really, really quick. And we're going to ask Martin Marietta, who built the Lantern Pod, to fund it. And that way the Navy won't, you know, uh, if you did a competition, that means somebody else could win. And Lockheed really wanted to, to win this. They were trying to market a pod and Raytheon had a pod. And uh, everybody was trying to, to build a pod. Oh, see, I was one—I was wondering about all that stuff too. So that's cool too. And we, and we looked at it, and the one thing we learned in Desert Storm is you'll be an idiot to go low. It's just like Vietnam; they go low because of the threat, and then they go high. Like we don't need the other pod. All that is is a low altitude nav pod. We don't need that. We just need the targeting pod. You mean, and any means the other pod of the lantern system as it was on the f-16 and the f-15 right yeah okay so we just wanted to go for that and i had the connections because i spent three years as a lead on aim9x and then i the air force had lead on amram but i knew all my counterparts in the air force there was only one of me but there um there was a guy for every missile and every sub variant and they were all down at Langley, and I, I was a geobachelor, so I would always leave on a Thursday, go down there and meet with them all day Friday. And I, I picked up all the responsibility 
because I was there for JNAM, JSAL. So I knew all of their weapons guys and the F-15 guy down there. I said, if I need to borrow a pod, can you make that happen? And he goes, yes, because this is important. And his name was Doogie Halverson. And he also came along with us and we said, okay, tell us about the hand control because we're going to have to put a hand control in there. And it turned out that we found out that there was a whole bunch of A-12 hand controllers that had been built and never, they're just sitting there. So we wouldn't have to go buy. He said, don't use ours. You know, I'll tell you what's wrong with ours. So oh, we ended up oh, having thanks. a better, That's very a better good. factors integration than they did, thanks to this guy in F-15U Wizzo. And, and then when we finally flew it, we got him a ride in the Tomcat. I'm jumping ahead. And he was like amazed at how the quality picture because we flew it in a P-TID. And, and he goes, oh, my God. And we told them everything we did. We also put an IMU in there because one of the showstoppers, another minor miracle was if you're going to hang a pot on an airplane, you have to bore sight it. And they have to have these elaborate rigs. And no one had ever developed that for a Tomcat. And I was rubbing my chin going, wait, I, I just did AIM-9X. And AMRAM, and we get around that on those weapons by putting a little IMU inside the missile. And so when you fire up the missile and you wake it up, it it figures out where it is relative to the armament data line in the airplane. So I just knew that from all my missile stuff. And so I call up Litton and said, hey, how do I get one of those chips like or in the AMRAM or AIM-9X? He goes, well, do you want it with GPS? And I said, what? He goes, well, we're actually pulling those out of the GPS can, he called them cans, LN200s. I said, well, I think I want the GPS because the, the problem with the Tomcat is it never knows where it really is. And so I knew that from TARPS. You know, I was telling the Intel guys, don't go off the the, the data block on the pictures because yeah. we're, we're like 200 miles inside Iraq. The airplane's like at least six miles off, you know, where it says it is. And uh, so we got, that was another minor miracle. We got GPS, which allowed us to have something that the F-15 never had. And that was the ability to put in coordinates and tell the pod to look at those coordinates, which was a huge leap forward that they never considered because they thought they had the best SAR in the world, which was really nice. They were having to look at the SAR, just like all our buddies at BT. Synthetic And then transfer over you know, after they figured out where they were, well, we got to skip that step because in most cases, you know where your target is. And because of ROE, you, you have to know where your target is. So all of a sudden that, that just revolutionized the theater when I'm jumping ahead again, when our pod got in the theater and they were sending the Tomcats out every day to verify where all the SAM sites and other targets of interest were. That was Desert Fox. Cause I went over and like, we were talking about crunch. I went and debriefed, um, Will Cooney about that, you know, how did it work, you know, for you guys. And then and by then we started adding more embellishments. But back to the Lantern thing, we, we had, there was a really bright systems engineer at Martin Marietta named Monty Watson. And he figured out how to take that chip, write code on it. So when it was in, inserted underneath the hand controller and put in the airplane, and plugged into that plug behind the AUG-15, it heard what the airplane was doing across these sync lines and would recognize, oh, I'm in an A, or I'm in a, I'm in a B, or a, what other variant, even a D. And the Point Magoo, Magoo guys were like, oh, no, we're going to need nine months 
$9 million to write code for all this. He goes, no, you don't. And I was in the room where they went back and forth and he pulled out the diagrams of the Tomcat, laid them out and showed how this worked. And they had no clue what he was talking about. And all the other people from Pax River, and they were told by the Hornet Mafia to stay out of it anyway. So we said, look, we're going to go it alone. And six weeks later, after that meeting, we were dropping bombs. Snort and his guys were dropping LGTRs in Deer County. Then we went down to Viecas to drive live, drop live and demonstrated within six weeks that it could work. And, uh, and that was with VF-103. We went to Admiral Allen, who's another minor miracle that he had left the Pentagon after he agreed to retire the A-6. And I knew that. And he, I was in that meeting. It was right before I retired. And he took his finger around the room. And he says, if you guys do not put precision strike on the Tomcat, I'm going to haunt each and every one of you. And he meant it. And I, as I'm involved with the strategy meeting with Martin Marietta, they're going, hey, we're hearing from the Hornet guys. This is never going to happen. So I related that story. And they said, okay, but we, we need someone to tell us. And I said, what, what about Admiral Allen? Is that good enough for you? Because now he's a vice admiral and he's air land. And he can authorize an airplane, a fleet airplane, one airplane under what's called RAMEC, Rapid Engineering Change Proposal. He, he can modify one airplane. And Snort was all over that because I was going down every Friday by then and meeting with Snort and planning the strategy. Um, and he goes, hey, you make it happen. I'll give you an airplane. And then we all met with Admiral Allen on a really dark day, gloomy day. And it was it was almost surreal. You could have cut the air with a knife. And he walks in and he picks up the brief and he rolls it up and he points at me and he goes, we don't need to talk about this. And I'm like, oh, somebody's gotten to him. Someone's told him not to do it. And he goes, I'm going to take this brief and I'm going to shove it up Brent Bennett's ass. And that was the two star Hornet guy that was in charge of the aviation was telling him he couldn't do it. He goes, you got your airplane. And he turned to snort. He goes, whatever these guys need, get it done and get it done fast. Stay one town ahead of the posse. We're going to make this happen. And so my, I was sweating so bad at that point. I'm like, boy, did I call this wrong? And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, Oh yeah. He, he came through for us. And the, the guy from uh, Mark Mietro was a VP and he had the decision authority to give us, it was only like a hundred thousand dollars, but that was if you don't have it, that might as well be ten million. Right. And so they turned all their people on and made it happen. And, you know, we were dropping bombs. They were all shacks. And here VF one three, that was in April of ninety five. And in June of ninety six, they deployed with Lantern. And so because there's one thing that you can't compress and that's the contracting cycle. You can, and we had to fight pitch battles with the DT guys, development test guys, and the operational test guys because they all said, you can't put it on the airplane without us. And I said, yes, we can. And that was the other minor miracles is Dana Dervais was um, fighter wing ops, and he had just come from an OT tour, and Rat Slade had just come from the X4, and then Alex Hanarkis. Uh, was the XO of the F-103, and he just come from DT. So they all knew how to do it. And my brief to them was, you got to do it just like you were at Pax River or Point Magoo, so that nobody can question what you did. Because we'd done this before with the TARP spot, never went to VX-4. The uh, ARC-182 um, radios never went there. The um, LORAP cameras never went there because they weren't enough. 
And if you make the case you, and you have trusted agents, you don't have to do that. And that's that was the strategy I put together. And even though they were like, you know, the come up to four guys were like, no, we want to fly this. I said, you don't realize if you stretch this out even a week or a month, you may not happen. We've got to present this before the next Palm cycle starts up and somebody raids all the money that's left because they were plenty of people trying to retire the Tomcat. And once you have that sunset established, they won't put another dime towards the airplane. And it really extended the airplane all the way to 2006 because they were people that were trying to make it go away in 97. They were really, I mean, the whole Hornet Mafia wanted to make it go away and they wanted to use the money to pay their, uh, they had a midlife upgrade bill and then they had the center barrel problem all these things are huge bills and they're all looking around at everybody else to pay them <laughs> so there's a lot there's a lot of detail in there yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. so hey joe there's so the funny thing about all this is as as you know like i hit the fleet in 96 that's when i showed up so you're you have retired and have started working yeah. all this from the yeah. other side of the fence right and now and i'm walking in I show up at VF32 as a brand new guy. We don't have Lantern Pod, but it's a thing out there somewhere. We've heard about it. Like, I think in 96, that's about when I think Snort was dropping those. That was 96, 95, yeah. right? In 96, there was only 95. He dropped them. And then we got our first Navy bot pods in 96. And there were only like three of them. Okay, I was going to say two, but because yeah. I remember walking out the first time and going, "What is that thing? Look at that thing out there!" You know, and that there were only a few jets, and they had to be wired, and 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 all yeah. that st- all that you had to have the hand controller put in there. And there's an interesting thing, you know, you mentioned the PTID. Um, so the PTID was a, a com- unrelated upgrade to Lantern. Right. It was already planted, funded, on its way. Yeah, and the the programmable tactical information display. It took that old fishbowl TID and turned it into this big, giant. I don't want to. I guess multifunction display. I'm oh, not sure what the yeah. right term is. That's what it was. Yeah. It, it, it's a modern, a modern multifunction display, right? And so it was huge, and it had great resolution. So instead of being that old raster green on black that was the old TID, you had. Um, I won't say it was still black and white. It wasn't color, but it was it was just sharper. It had a greater resolution. And that just happened to be a thing that was implemented right about the same time, maybe the, yeah, a couple of years was. before as it started, because there were still TID jets while there were PTID jets when I got started. Meanwhile, then we bring in this lantern pod and it just kind of miraculously shows up. To us, it was a miracle. It just shows up, you know, something happened. Somebody waved some fairy dust or something. Yeah. His name was Harry Joe, I guess. But uh, yeah. you know, all, all this stuff just happened and we get this pod. And every once in a while you had an airplane and it was, you, you'd have like one or two. And it wasn't until several years later that every airplane could go out and fly. And you would, you know, you go up on the flight deck and every single airplane had a lantern pod on it. You know, I've, I've fast forwarded now to 2005, 2006. It was still new at that time because the air force got their first pods uh, for desert storm and they didn't have the complete double set of the nav and the LTS. They were, they were getting them fresh off the, uh, um, production line so it hadn't been around very long and that's so it, which makes it even more amazing because i mean it was just it was such a well integrated system and you mentioned that chip a couple of times i'm just going to make a guess here did, basically did that take the digital information from the pod and convert it to analog was it an analog right. digital converter yeah. as in what okay. it was ad uh a to d and d to a and it was um 
because the pod was built for a 1553 Mux bus. And uh, that sounds familiar. Like, I've heard of that before. But that's what I had to deal with on AIM.X. So I brought all that to the table, that understanding yeah. of how do you, we had decided that AIM-9X was going to be a digital uh, missile. And, but what do you, what happens when you put it on an airplane that doesn't have digital on it? Right. So we had to deal with all that and all the solution sets for that. So, um, and one thing we had to do is the pod is basically smarter than the airplane. And, you know, because the basic Tomcat A version, at least, is like a Commodore 64 computer. So one day, Rat Slade and I, you know, we were just about to hang it on the airplane. We had to go up to Fairchild, and they had a regular TID set up, and they had a PTID set up, um, talking to the pod. And then the pod was talking to the airplane. It's a one-way integration. The Tomcat does not know there's a pod sitting out there on its wing. Unlike the Hornet that has to know everything and talk to it, it did not know. So when the pod generates symbology, we had to deconflict the symbology from the pod with the symbology that's on the airplane being generated by the AUG-9. And so we put up just the flashing L for the laser is firing. I remember when that came up, it was over the top of something else from the AUG-9. But this this guy is sitting there with his typewriter going, okay, uh, how about now? And then he'd move it down a little bit. So they actually pre-programmed it. They had like an EEPROM thing that, that could program. And then we, we fired up all up on test to see every symbol that Yog 9 could fire up and every symbol that the lantern pod would fire up to make sure nothing was deconflicting and that they, the symbology looked the same. So it didn't look like, you know, and I defy people that know airplanes to not realize they're looking at two different sources when all that stuff comes up. I, I had no idea. Now, granted, I sat yeah. in the front seat, but I had a repeater and I, I, oh, I could see some of it. I, I, I had no idea that that was the case yeah. that was just basically laid on top. That's incredible. That's yeah, absolutely incredible. Cool. So now the other thing you mentioned, you talked about an IMU for the, now not everybody, a lot of our folks are going to know what an IMU is for the folks who don't. Can you tell, can you tell or explain what that was and again, why that was so important? Well, you know, we, started getting airplanes maybe in the late 60s, 70s that had uh, inertial navigation systems. And a key to any of these is an inertial measurement unit, an IMU, that basically is, you know, some of them have laser ring gyros in them, but it basically is a platform that knows where it is in three-dimensional space. And it has to align itself um, as well when you fire up. So we had to figure out how, with the airplane unable to talk to the pod, how how do we tell the pod where it is? That was another trick we had to come up with because it's a one-way integration. The pod is spinning the stuff out, but the pod cannot fire up, at least the IMU part, without knowing where it is. Just like I can still remember today, you know, the lat long for um, Oceana, 36489-76021. You know, the Rio had to put that in the airplane um, to tell them where it is. Well, what we did is we... The Monty Watson figured out listening on this party line, it would listen to the Tomcat and it would know that the Rio was putting in lat long into the cap panel. And when it detected that, it would it would put it in put it in there. You weren't really talking to the the lantern pod, the lantern pod was listening to what the Rio was doing. I thought that was that was pretty pretty slick. That's cool. And then it had its own GPS, which refines its position and updates yeah. it over time. And that that is really cool. I, I did not realize how integrated or 
lack of integration, yeah. I guess it might be a better term. The pod was with the airplane. I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. cool. A lot of little miracles in there. The lat long for Miramar is three, two, five, two, five, one, one, seven, zero, eight, five. But you guys probably already know that also. Okay. But- <laughs> <laughs> Lunch, Lunch, well, you're giving attaboys. I want to jump on that train here because, hey, Joe, you talked about uh, Halverson, I think it was, who steered you to the hand controller. And as a user who, who you know, picked up uh, Lantern late in my career, I was amazed at how good that hand controller was. You're yeah. using your left hand and I'm right handed and you're running this thing. And it was just it was well designed, the functionality. I mean, it it was uh, it was brilliant. Well, you can so, thank the A12 program for that. Yeah, the A12 guys, yeah. they got that right. <laughs> the hand controller. <laughs> we were pretty proud, and Crunch brought this up about the TID being this green. It, it reminded me of looking at an aquarium that's never been cleaned, you know. <laughs> it, it just, and um, the F-18 guys, you know, everybody was scoffing at the Tomcat when it showed up, and all of a sudden they realized the Tomcats were seeing stuff a lot further out. And it got to the uh, with the P Kosovo, yeah. The um, one of the F eight. We used to bring the the COs up to WB to debrief. You know, all the Tomcat guys. We'd get whoever the the good guy in the squadron was. They'd come up and debrief us. And uh, this one Hornet guy knew about. It. He says, "I want to debrief you." And I'm like, "Okay." And he goes, he holds up this his business card and he goes, "I'm a card carrying member of the Hornet Mafia, and I'm telling you, we have no business lazing for ourselves." One time we rolled in the target, we missed the target, we found out we didn't even have the right target. The only people that know what they're doing is, and this is another part of the Lantern legacy, um, there were several other aspects to it, four. Number one, um, Brian Brurod had figured out we need to be FAC-A qualified. And that had not anything directly involved with the Lantern pod, but it did with the mission. I mean, you could technically have done, it might have been hard to do without it, you know, because Marines did OA4M stuff without any kind of FLIR for years. But Marines had developed the forward air controller airborne whole, you know, TTPs. And when it looked like the Tomcat was going to run out of missions, he went out on his own to MOTS and got called and started calling other people. So that combination of having the Tomcat as sort of like a quarterback and having the LARM pod was like huge, lazing for other people. And then we added the, the ability, because JDAM was coming along, we added the ability to take that uh, LARM pod and the GPS and actually put target quality coordinates into the airplane. And that was through what we called um, TQ, Tomcat, tactical targeting. So that was easily incorporated. And we were way ahead. By then, we were way ahead of the Air Force. And I was telling my Air Force buddies, you know, we're doing this, right? And yeah, yeah, you know, we, we got all this, you know, no way are you ever going to be better than us. And then we get over to theater and they go, what the hell? You know, they actually wrote a combat men's asking for the uh, Tomcat recce pod, you know, lantern pod saying, we need this. We're like, we told you about it. And Lockheed, by then Lockheed Martin had bought Martin Marietta and they're telling them about it, but they were just scoffing like, no way could we have come up with something better. And the other one was the uh, FTI, the fast um, tactical imagery, ability to uh, screen capture an image and send it out and yeah. to satisfy uh, ROE, which was pretty huge. And then we got Rover later on, and then we got the 24K laser. So the Tomcat lantern, it, like you said, Crunch, early on, the Tomcat went out with his head 
held high. And it's very ironic in that the air-to-air legacy is probably vindicated by the Iranians of all people. The Tomcat has a great kill ratio, no matter who you want to believe. They did have some success over there. But the real combat legacy in the U.S. Navy is really its air-to-ground performance in its last 10 years, exactly 10 years of 1996 to 2006. That's about right. That's 100% right. Because it's funny you you say that because I remember – you know, I, I remember when I first showed up, I mean, the rag instructors were, they, they were professionals. They knew how to learn how to bomb and do it, but you could tell that they were, they were learning as well, you know, and, cool. and by the time, you know, the, the, the last deployment, I was the Mo for 213, uh, on that last deployment and that those squadrons, all we did was we didn't even have AIM-54 anymore. Uh, you know, we had already divested of that and and we had nothing but Lantern. That was our mission, Lantern with Rover. And I tell you what, it was amazing. We held that mission and it was amazing how well the airplane performed in theater in that air-to-ground role. You know, that. one thing the Navy did smart when they uh, shut down the A-6 and they switched over to Tomcat was they brought up so many A-6 pilots and BNs. Into the Tomcat community, the top, so crunch, the top, the cream of the crunch. Crop. You talked yeah. about being at uh, at one hundred and one and the instructors. I bet a lot of those guys were A six guys. Uh, who well, brought over? You could tell the difference. You you, yeah. you could tell the difference. There were A six guys who you are like that guy knows what he's talking about. That's a Tomcat guy who <laughs> really knows how to fight and has learned how to bomb. Right? Yeah. But you could. They were, but they were all better than me. Let's be very clear. <laughs> <laughs> It was good stuff. That was really good stuff. Um, yeah, perfect. So let's see here. What uh, what were you talking about just now? You were talking about uh, going out on a high note, I think it was. What was that? Uh, for me in my career, because I'm like, you know, my admiral was beating me down. I want you. He said, you can either be a reserve and stay here or go work for this company. You'll do real well there. Um, but I need you here in Washington. And But his um, chief of staff, uh, Kurt Schoen, had um who I'd known my whole career said, you need to think about yourself and and what the Admiral's saying. And the company they sent me to was Jim Rollison, you know. So he said, they want to hire you. So uh just go out and talk to him. And I went out there and, and it sort of dawned on me, yeah, yeah, I need to I need to do this. I saw that I'll, I'll continue to be able to work AIM 9X. At that time I didn't know about the lantern thing until I actually reported in there. But that became one of my big things. I worked M9X, and I got to work that for 12 years and um, influenced that. And, wow. Uh, nice. Cool. So, so you – go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so the, we, all we've talked about so far is like the incredible successes you had, the, the you know, basically these miracles of alignment that have were so fortunate that it just happened. What I, I'm sure there might have, must have been some missteps, some lost opportunities. What – in all that greatness, what what didn't go well? Oh, for me personally? Well, for you or for the program. Well, yeah, for great. The yeah. For Lantern also. Well, I think that the Lantern bra, um, was, uh, it, it just, it just worked out. It just, it was, we, every Friday I'd be with Snort. And, uh, and I tell you, as flamboyant as Snort was, I tell you, when it came to figuring out, because I, I would tell him who I was talking to. I was, if this was Watergate, I was Deep Throat. I was the one going, I was going over to Congress. I was going, I was going to places nobody, no Tomcat guy could go. 
and um, and I was going down to OSD to talk and to you because you were a contractor guys. at this point. Yes, yeah. So that that was my job, and then I'd come back and report to Snort, and we would say, okay, who do we need to see next? Who should be the right person to talk to them? So we had this whole campaign strategy of how we're going to get this thing sold, and uh, and. The F-14 requirements officer was basically threatened by his admiral, uh, Stan O'Connor, um, that you will not support this. He'd come over to his office because he'd hear that, you know, we'd had a success. And and luckily, Steamer just suffered in silence. And he would tell me after hours, yeah, they're all over us, but, you know, keep doing it, you know. And we had a couple guys inside the program office that were talking to us, you know, saying, yeah, we're, we can't give you any support, but, you know, we'll tell you about this and tell you about that. And uh, I mean, that reminds me, that reminds me of little stories that I heard uh, in the early nineties of just intrigue, uh, the battles between the uh, Tomcat community and the Hornet mafia and stuff. And, and some guys, you know, lost their careers. I mean, yeah, they did. And, um, Somewhere I have this, we created a, uh, it was my idea, but I got, um, Martin Mary had to pay for it, is we created a uh, Vice Admiral Allen, Sweet P. Allen Precision Strike Trophy to give to the top squadron every year. Oh, that's but good. wasn't publicly announced is I created a miniature version of it. And every one of those people I mentioned, from Jim Wilson to Monty, to one guy I didn't mention, Dan Fishoff, who was the business development guy that was really an engineer that he fought to get all the money. We made sure every year at Fighter Fling in a private ceremony with the Commodore, every one of those guys would get get one of those awards um, that had played a part in it. We just stretched it out over a number of years so we didn't dilute the value. But all this, you know, we made sure everybody got recognized that, that did something. That's okay. cool. So you hinted at uh, your personal price. Do you want to go there or do you want to just – move on my personal yeah oh no no i you know i i just fell backwards into everything you know i i mean i went to let's call with a pilot contract and then my eyes failed but you know i had already met you and started talking to you and you know i tried to get a waiver but it came to the point where they kept saying no and i went i'll be a Rio. my chances to fly tomcats probably went up i think you know <laughs> and uh as you know, not everybody wanted to, to fly and potentially, you know, some people wanted to do P3s or even E2s and yep. and attack. But, yep. you know, that's all I wanted. And, uh, so um, did you uh, keep track of the lantern? Obviously, you've uh, kept your finger in the uh, finger on the pulse of the uh, strike fighter community. Were you sitting there uh, as the years went by and lantern went into combat? Oh, yeah. I was, like I said, I was uh, briefing and debriefing every squadron, trying to find um, lessons learned, trying to figure out what that's how T-Cubed and FTI all came about. Um, and it wasn't until uh, um, many years later that uh, I left WB in 2003 to work for Naval Special Warfare. But I got to use all these lessons and some of the cool integrations we did um, on a Super Tucano and then a uh, OB-10 and some unnamed airplanes. All this one-way integration and bypassing traditional DTOT basically gave me what I do today, which is rapid response stuff and getting to work with the warfighter. You know, I always want to work with the people actually doing the job. And Okay, and what then, more can you tell us about what you're doing today? You just mentioned a couple of airframes. 
Well, I sort of, you know, whatever. Uh, I just came from Tampa today where talking to the warfighters about what they need in theater and, um, you know, it's, it's just stuff they need. Sometimes it needs some integration, sometimes development. Just feel like I'm a concierge in a hotel, you know. <laughs> hey, we need this. <laughs> we need more ice. <laughs> yeah, only. <laughs> sometimes, like the OV-10 project, that was pretty slick. And we had, interestingly enough, they were all um, Tomcat uh, Wizzos. Um, John Boy Walton. Huh. And, uh, in fact, he was with us in the uh, Super Tucano and uh, followed through to the OB-10 program, which we put a whole weapon system in there, pattern on the exact way we put Lantern. You know, we had an airplane that was even more archaic, an OB-10 that was built in 1968, and we had to build a weapon system for it and put a FLIR, put everything in there, have Rover, have Link-16, all these things, and build displays, put them in there, and John Boy actually went from lieutenant commander to 06 in our program. Every once in a while, he would come out. They'd go, well, you know, if, if you have a law, we need to make you a CO, the weapons school. And he goes, oh, I don't have time. And they were like, we're giving you a CO. He goes, um, you know, once you work with the warfighters, you're like that. I mean, the real cutting edge. He didn't. And they finally convinced him that, that our program was between the Super Decano and the OV-10. So he went off and was the CO. And then he came back and we got the OB-10s fitted out in 2012. And then he went off to be ops on, uh, I think it was Reagan um, or Bush. Maybe it was Bush. And uh, he came back to us. He actually made 06 flying with us. And, um, you know, and uh, let's see, the other one was Cunningham. Ended up in, uh, he's in 211. I think he's in 211 now. Um, And he was another guy that um, really was a weapons school guy that came to us and just really helped define, you know, you, you got to define what the copter was going to be in the rear of this OB-10. And it was a man hunting machine. It was out there to kill people. And, uh, and it did. And um, so they brought him back and they were like, here's your career path. And no, no, I, I want to stay with these guys. And that's what the detailers don't get that, you know, but. Um, Interesting. But some yeah. of the guys, like we talked about Bill Dine, he went in there and never came out. So. You know, it's it's not unusual to be in those commands for upwards of twenty years. Well, that's good. Glad to hear. Glad to hear those guys are dedicated and they they find something yeah. they like. And I mean, it's easy to understand. You get in a uh, results oriented group. Um, that's cool. You get to do stuff in your own lifetime. Yeah. Yep. I got to tell you, you. I mean, I was sitting here looking at what my dream of this uh, interview was. And you stepped through, you know, answered a lot of my uh, of the questions I had. You answered questions Crunch and I threw at you. And, uh, man, you've shed light on the system that that uh, transformed the Tomcat in the end of its career. So well, I was not, happy to do nicely that. Nicely done. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I have to tell you, I learned a lot uh, in, in this discussion because there's you mentioned quite a few things that I'm like, well, I never knew that. It's most, most specifically the development process and how it communicates or doesn't communicate with the airplane because I just assumed that it was incredibly inter- integrated. Right. I just assumed that because yeah. it feels like it. And yeah. that's just that's a testament to the genius, the genius, genius serosity yeah. <laughs> of that development team there. I'm going to uh, look that, Crunch, I'm going to look that up. 
Yeah, I, I don't, I'm making words up now. The the, uh, the intelligence of that team that you were able to put that together because it is absolutely it was seamless in 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 appearance that it was just slapped on. It was amazing. It was great. Hey Joe, you have anything like else? Anything we didn't ask yeah, you? Right, you yeah, I want to thank all the guys that participated in Lambert Cabana. It was a great team. I mean, it was like best breed. I learned a lot from them, and you know, I'm doing what I do today because of Lambert. You know, being able to look at an airplane and not think conventionally and uh, I remember one of the uh, admirals at Navair called me down after it went down and says, well, we need to be able to do this. And I said, but you can't because you uh, have all these people that are like a union that want to be paid and you have to be able to go fast. But right. they, they have enabled. I am affiliated with the Navair's experimentation office. And um, so they do give us, but they have to give us top cover all the time because you, people either think, I got accused in one meeting when I, I actually became the, the, the PM for the OB-10 project. And, um, and I was in a meeting and this one guy looked at me, one of the engineers, he said, you have no engineering conscience at all <laughs> because I wouldn't do his risk matrices and all these things. I said, I know in my head where we are and we may be yellow in, in every, every category, but I'm going to deliver this thing on time. And then it instantly turns green. What's wrong with that? He goes, you can't have that much risk. And I said, well, this is not for the faint-hearted, but I trust all these people in the room, and, and we don't have time to waste time filling out risk uh, curves and stuff like that. You know, that's nice, man. It's good stuff, man. I, yep. Yeah, it, it, it you make engineering sound exciting. Yeah, <laughs> it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. You have to work at it. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Joe, this has been an incredible interview. Really appreciate this. This has been oh, a lot of fun. I, yeah, a lot of fun. And I, it, I I think you just talked. I'm not even sure how many questions I got an opportunity to ask because you just kept going and it was perfect. I really appreciate well, you it. You gave me a good outline. I, I knew where to take it. All right. Yeah. Well, it's good stuff. Thanks, buddy. It's always good seeing you and chatting. Yeah, likewise. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And to all our listeners, thanks for listening to the F14 Tomcast. Okay, before we get to the debrief for that episode, let me just make a couple of administrative comments. One is thanks to the people who have supported us and continue to support us in our fundraiser. And we'll roll the names for uh, for those who have contributed after this. Two, we still have, and this is as of uh, March, early March 2022, we still have a few embroidered F-14 Tomcast polo shirts. If you are interested, send us an email at our regular email address, questions at f14tomcast.com, and I will send you the information about cost and how to pay for it. Now, to get to the episode interview, I got to admit, even though I've known Hey Joe for many years, as we talked about, and I knew what he was doing, I was surprised to sit down and talk to him in detail about the Lantern program. I mean, one, it was just an amazing program. I've heard about some of the... Uh, the great things they did to work around the built-in the built-in delays in the procurement system. But that team was just incredible. What do you think, Crunch? You knew about Lantern from your whole Tomcat career. What do you think learning more about it? Well, by I tell you, thank you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Hey Joe was an amazing guest today. Uh you know, I as you said, when I first showed up in the fleet in nineteen ninety-six, we were just getting the first lantern pods on the fleet. Like we had two of them on the entire flight line at Oceana when I show up, right? And for me, I was like, Hey, there's this new thing. I had no idea 
at the time of the procurement process and what was going on behind the scenes. And so this, and here's the other thing is, hey, Joe and I, I, uh, I don't believe we've ever met in person. If we have, it was at the O Club and I, you know, we, 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 we know of each other maybe, but, uh, uh, you know, he and I have never met in person, even though we were both in VF32, only separated by a couple of years, but I had no idea how involved he was. You know, I see him, you know, he's on my Facebook feed. He puts a, a you know, a new photo on there from the, from the shoebox all the time. And it's just amazing. So a lot of us really know him from his photos. And the guy flew with a camera probably every single flight by, by the looks of it. And absolutely amazing photos that he has out there. And I knew him as a photographer. I had no idea how involved he was in the lantern process or how important he was to actually making that thing reality. So was he, was it all on his shoulders? No. I mean, was he, were there other people who were, had to be there? Absolutely. But he was one of the handful of people that if they had not been there at that time, I don't think it would have happened. And I think that's a testament to him and the people he was working with at the time that, you know, those guys, right place, right time with the right skill set, the right attitude that they made it happen. Had they not been there, I think it's safe to say the F-14 probably would have had a much earlier retirement than we saw because we would have been into forced obsolescence much sooner. Those are well my thoughts. Said. What a great interview that was. I appreciate well it for coming out. Hey, uh, and one other thing, as you're talking, it made it reminded me, one thing that Hey Joe did was he gave a lot of credit to the other names, the people who were, uh, who were also key players. Okay, I've been waiting to say this. Talk about our next episode. Episode number 15, it's all about the F-15. We talked to, it's not all about the F-15, it's a comparison of the F-15 and the F-14. We talked to an Air Force F-15C pilot who did an exchange tour with the F-14 Tomcat Squadron. So that's gonna be very interesting. I know you're gonna like it. You've been listening to the F-14 Tomcast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at F14Tomcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, Visit BVRPro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.